0: what happened last week I was at Annie's Chinese group um, which I go to once a month Um, she has this special segment um, called Question Mark Uh, it's where anyone can ask me a question uh, and then we all consider what God's word has to say together I tell them up front that I don't know all the answers but I know the one who does Uh, and so we look at God's word Anyway, this new person who had just started coming along uh, asked this, quote, I've got only one question and I've asked all kinds of people this question as I've travelled throughout the world but they haven't been able to give me an answer and that is, what is the meaning of life? It's a great question and it's not only a great question Can I say it's the most important question anyone could ask? And I said, you know what? Jesus actually tells us the answer to that question. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, and for all of our members, most of them do, uh, turn up to John chapter 17, and I'll show you what I mean. Keep your finger in Ecclesiastes, turn over to John chapter 17, or have a look on your phone, because in just one simple but profound verse, Jesus explains what the meaning of life is all about. And while I've got no doubt that what Jesus says is true, before I tell you what he says, I have to ask you this morning, because maybe you're asking this question yourself, are you prepared or are you willing to hear it? For if Jesus really does give you the answer to the meaning of life, your life can never be the same again. Because if you do reject what he says, then you'll be personally culpable of committing what I call an existential rebellion. So are you really prepared to hear what Jesus says the meaning of life Is? Well, it's found in John chapter 17, verse 3. And it's where Jesus says this Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, if you want to know the meaning of life, and you're visiting here this morning, and maybe you don't normally go to church, or Maybe you go to church, but you're sort of like that guy that Jesus met, and you're religious, but you, haven't, you didn't know what I was talking about to the children. If you want to know the meaning of life, then you've got to know the one who created and sustains it. And that means you have to know Jesus. Because if you know Jesus, then you will know God. And if you know God, then you will know the only one who is truly eternal. All other gods are false. All other gods, I can say that because they're man-made. Jesus is unmade. That is the answer to the meaning of life. But to live for anything else, well, as we're about to see, is meaningless. And that's precisely what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. This, this, This brilliant demolition, of why living for anything else other than Jesus will never satisfy, will never give you meaning. So if you turn back to me now to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, let's hear what God's Word says. I'm going to read from verse 1 through to verse 11, and this is the Word of God. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord, as we come and as we look at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us uh, to concentrate and to understand because we know that these are spiritual truths which without your Holy Spirit's help would just be blank pages. We pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just see an outline, but we would see colour. We pray that we would see and know Jesus, who is eternal life. Lord, we pray that we would trust you, that we would obey you, and that we would live to worship you. So, Father, we commit this time into your hands now and ask for your blessing. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, for most of church history, Solomon has been widely understood to be the author of the book of Ecclesiastes, which I just read to you. But unfortunately, all that changed with Martin Luther, who of all people decided to question it. Luther's point was, simply, if Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes, then why didn't he just say so? Why refer to him as the teacher or the preacher? And unfortunately, ever since then, people have questioned whether or not Solomon did in fact write it. But I don't think we have to be that sceptical. For instance, in many of his writings, the Apostle John is reluctant to name himself by name. Which is sadly also why many people reject him as the author of those books as well but it's pretty obvious that the same person who wrote the gospel of john also wrote first john second john third john as well as the book of revelation as a ministry mate of mine once said if they weren't written by john then it must have been done by somebody who made a really good impression Just because Solomon doesn't mention himself by name then is not as significant as some people make out. The reason why I think it's so important that we understand that Solomon did write the book of Ecclesiastes, though, is because it is such a profound examination of human existence. In fact, I would dare to say this. If you only ever read one book of philosophy, the book in front of you would be it the book of Ecclesiastes. I don't think it has ever been surpassed in its examination of life under the sun. And obviously that can only really be done by someone who is both incredibly knowledgeable and exceptionally wise, even supernaturally empowered to be so. And when it comes to both of those things, there is, the Bible says, no one greater than, in the history of mankind than the person of Solomon. If you just turn back to 1 Kings chapter 4 for a minute, I'll show you what I mean. Because uh, as you have probably already know, God said to Solomon that he would give Solomon when he began his reign a wise and discerning heart so that there would never be anyone else like him. And people would travel all over the world to to hear from Solomon and to witness this. So 1 Kings chapter 4, and starting at verse 29 to verse 34, it says this. God says, "'God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight "'and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. "'Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East "'and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt.'" He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan, the Ezraite, wiser than Heman, Calcol, and Dada, sons of Mahol. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He described plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. You see, he didn't just talk about what we might say is religious or spiritual things. He he had wisdom about everything. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Now, this being the case, there would have been very little reason for Solomon to refer to himself by name. All you'd have to do is say, I am Solomon, I am the one, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, the one whom the whole world comes to see. Because quite frankly, his reputation would have well and truly preceded him. He was so great, he didn't even need to tell you his name. For when it comes to wisdom and knowledge, if I can put this reverently, Solomon truly was the goat. He was the greatest of all time. Everyone thought the earth at that time, or even throughout the earth at that time, rather, knew about Solomon's wisdom and knowledge. No one surpassed him. But that also means that what you and I have in our hands, or you have in your lap right now, is incredibly special. It was written over 3,000 years ago, for a start, And it's one of the greatest philosophical writings ever produced, and I would claim, unprecedented. And while there have been many intellectuals throughout the ages who have written about the meaning of life, none have done it as well, and this is what I really appreciate, none have done it as concisely as Solomon. If you really are suffering from insomnia, take up a philosophy textbook sometime and you'll just know how turgid and dense they are. So, as you and I make our way through the book of Ecclesiastes, can I say we're in for a real treat as we make our way through the whole book? Because it's just such a profound examination as to, and hear me here, the purpose and the meaning of life, of what it makes life truly worthwhile. And the key insight that, can I say, Solomon offers is, first of all, this. And without this insight, you can't get anything else he's going to say. And that is, everything since the fall, that is, everything since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and this world became prone to frustration and decay, everything under the sun is vanity or literally meaningless. It comes from a Hebrew word, which I'm going to talk to you about a lot today, called Hevel. That might sound a little strange because you say, didn't you just tell me that Solomon was going to explain to me the meaning of life? Yes. Well, then how can he begin with the opposite of saying that life is ultimately meaningless? In fact, I just read it. Everything is meaningless. Well, because you can't know the meaning of life until you know that everything is meaningless. If you put your hope or trust in anything that exists under the sun right now, you're going to be profoundly disappointed. It's going to let you down. And it's going to let you down hard. Because since the fall, everything has been subject to frustration and decay. And if you're going to try and find meaning or purpose in anything in this life right now it is going to let you down you see you may enjoy the experience of something now but as we've all been wrestling with as a congregation death will take it away Solomon says in verses 2 and 3 vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity of vanities all is vanity What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now, as I said before, the word vanity or meaningless, depending on your translation, comes from the Hebrew word hevel. And hevel is the word which describes the vapor that you breathe out on a cold morning. It's there for a little while and then it's gone. It does not last. Significantly, it's the same word as the name Abel in Hebrew. He was the one, remember, who was killed by his brother Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. Likewise, the word for man is the name Adam, Adam in Hebrew. Which leads us back to what Solomon says that life is like. It is Abel. Hebel, it's vapor, it's vanity. You see, Solomon is not just talking about what life is like without God. He's talking about what life is like now, even with God in a fallen world. Since Adam's rebellion, everything is Abel. Everything is Hebel. It's meaningless Because here's the thing, death will take it away from you. You may think that you've stored up lots of wealth. Somebody else will get it. When I was at college in the United States, I went on an internship uh, for my university degree. I was studying anthropology. Uh, I went down to Honduras. We were preparing to stay with a tribe of Indians in the jungle for a couple of months and we are staying in a mission compound in the capital of Honduras, a wild place called Tegucigalpa. And I'll never forget picking up the book of Ecclesiastes, and I had the experience that Zach had. I was struck by this uh, particular spiritual truth. Here I was, 20 years old, in peak physical condition, my whole life ahead of me, and I was overwhelmed with this profound realisation with the truth of what Solomon was saying. Everything was Hebel. Everything was vanity. Nothing was going to satisfy, let alone last, because death was going to take it away. It didn't matter how fit I was. It didn't matter how smart I was. It didn't matter how traveled I was. It didn't matter how educated I was. I was going to die. Everything was head And I really needed to see that because true meaning was not going to be located in anything I did or experienced throughout my life, and as such... I needed to realize that everything was meaningless. In fact, there was a couple of times on that trip in which I should have died, but God graciously preserved my life. God didn't just, I think, explain this truth to my mind. He showed me firsthand how fragile, like a spider's web, life is. I was crossing a really busy road, and I thought that, I would quickly dash across in the break in traffic. Who waits for traffic lights, right? A friend of mine had already done that. He was on the other side. So I looked really quick, made a sprint. I can still see his eyes on the other side as he was on the footpath looking at me. And as I got closer to him, his eyes went bigger and bigger and bigger because as I stepped onto the footpath, a massive semi-trailer truck swept the back of my clothes. I hadn't seen it. If I had been a split second slower, I would not be here today. And my friend said to me, I just can't believe you survived. Even then, though, I knew that God had protected me from danger and he was irresistibly drawing me to himself. Even against my will. Now, Solomon unpacks his truth further in verses 4 to 9. Have a look at this with me. And he describes how because creation is a completely closed system, here's the key, then nothing we do throughout our lives is really going to change or have an impact on the world. You might be thinking, oh, that's a powerful story. But, you know, I'm still thinking, I reckon I've got some pretty good things in this life. Well, let me convince you why I think you're wrong. You see, don't get me wrong, we all have to be commissioned by God, uh, by God to be stewards of his creation. That's why he created us, to care for his creation and to make sure that it is not destroyed. But that's all we are. We are stewards. And therefore, anything we do or create is completely locked in by the boundaries that the Lord God Almighty has set. You see, right now, you may be experiencing great uh, success in business or maybe even great loss in losing someone you deeply love. But here's the meaninglessness of it. The sun, regardless of what situation you're in, the sun is still going to rise and it's still going to set. The wind is still going to blow and the water is still going to remain in the sea which means that anything, anything at all that we do is not going to make any difference. So why would you put your hope and trust in it? Why would we live our lives for what Solomon says is Hevel? Just think of Steve Jobs. He's one of the richest, most influential people in the world, probably even in the history of the world. His technological innovations revolutionise the way we communicate, access information and even spend our time without a doubt his inventions are some of the greatest discoveries and innovations in the history of the world aren't they in fact that small device that you have in your hands is more powerful than all of the computers that put man on the moon but has the world really changed that much is life really all that different The truth of the matter is, no, not really. I mean, when we got our very first smartphone, it was all very exciting and and fresh and novel. Some would even say new. But has it really made you smarter? More and more people would actually say, and this is academically as well, that phone in your hands has actually made you dumber. We probably just should start calling our phones dumb phones because that's what they make us. We don't spend more time in reflection. We don't spend more time reading. We don't spend more time relating. We don't spend more time talking. We don't spend more time in community. Never has mental health been higher, and yet we have so many more friends on Facebook. Just take another look at what Solomon expresses the situation is like in verses 8 to 10. Some people might complain that this is all too depressing, but can I actually say this is the most helpful thing you could ever hear? Because it's like Solomon is throwing philosophical cold water onto our sinful delusion that worship of anything in creation is going to bring you purpose or meaning or hope. Because of the truth of the situation, it's not. Solomon says, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Have you got enough music on Spotify? Yeah, next year you won't. Have you got enough art on the walls? I keep trying to convince my wife that we don't. <laughs> what, has been will, uh, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, this, see, this is new? It has been there in ages past. You see, it's not like someone has a baby, you know, in church. And we can say, oh wow, I've never seen one of those before. (laughs) Or alternatively, if the economy collapses or the horror of war breaks out, we say, oh, nothing like this has ever happened. It's all exactly the same as what has taken place in the past, there is nothing new. And both of those things keep on recurring with almost a predictable consistency. I don't mean to say this harshly, but it's, we're almost due for a war. Not because I want it, because it's just what happens over and over again. Or take all of the different things that people spend their lives accumulating. Okay, let's run a quick list. Accommodation, travel, wealth, career... It's all been number four. But here's the heavell of it. Death will take it all away. I've told many of you this, but in the first congregation uh, in Weewel, there was uh, an older Asian man. And because of the historic nature of our uh, town, a very small, small country town, it wasn't the end of the earth, but you could see it from my mate's place, Everybody had certain sections in the cemetery, the Presbyterian section, the Methodist section, the Catholic section, and he was this lone Buddhist all on his own at the far end of the cemetery. I felt sorry for him. (laughs) What was the urban legend that I spoke to the uh, undertaker about is he said, oh, Mark, that guy when he died, he had all of his wealth buried with him, all of it. All of his money he'd accumulated. He was alone in our community and didn't want to give it to anybody. And he said, you wouldn't believe it, grave robbers came. Just a week or so later, they dug it up they took it all. But to their credit, they wrote him a check. (laughs) Death took it all away. There's this fantastic poem by Percy Shelley called Ozymandias. It's where this ancient Egyptian monument has an inscription engraved and at its base it says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. You ever heard of Ozymandias? That's the point. You haven't. You don't remember him. He had a monument. You see, whoever this unnamed Egyptian king was, he thought in his lifetime there was no one greater. Look on me and despair, all you kings of the earth. He was, as you might say, the Donald Trump of the ancient world. There has never been a greater king. There's never been a greater pharaoh. He was rich. He was powerful. He was feared. And then he died. And he came to nothing. And his monument's collecting sand. And so Shelley concludes his poem by his writing... Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. (coughs) Meaningless. (laughs) Meaningless, Solomon says. Well, that brings us to the final thing that Solomon has to say, and that is, and this is going to be the hardest thing of all for some of us to hear, we will all be forgotten. This is the ultimate blow to all of our pride and sinful rebellion, is it not? Because it brings us face to face with our own meaninglessness. Solomon says, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Do you get the point? We are all insignificant in the ultimate scheme of things. Don't get me wrong. Our work and our responsibilities might have a real effect and impact on people's lives here and now. But despite what people say, we're all going to be forgotten. None of us is irreplaceable. And we're not going to be remembered for very long after we're gone either. At least not in the way in which we'd like or think we deserve it'd be a bit controversial. Think of the moment, or at the moment, the controversy around the William Crowther statue here in Hobart. He was a man who, for all intents and purposes, did enormous good in his own day. So much so that the people of Hobart paid to erect a statue because he was so generous in helping the poor. But now his reputation is being trashed and his legacy sullied because of an inappropriate act of which I'm told, talk to me later, I'm told he probably didn't do. He had the intent. Did he carry it out? There's debate. But here's the point. Who's to say that in the future something like that won't happen to us? I'm pretty sure there's no one here that's going to have a statue. But no one's going to remember us even if they try to have a monument, they're not going to remember us, at least not how we were remembered. Now, I know that all of this is incredibly negative and even depressing, so much so that you might want to say, well, might as well give up on living then, hey? If everything is so pointless and meaningless, why try to do anything at all? Why not curl up into a ball, you know, assume the fetal position, and just do whatever I like? And some people think this. Some people live this way. There's an old saying, it goes right back to antiquity. Let us eat and drink lots and be merry, in inverted commas, because tomorrow we die. Or, this phrase was summed up perfectly in we wore bumper stickers. I'm not here for a long time, I'm here for a good time. Well, they were honest, there's no meaning. So let's just live any way we please because it doesn't matter. Well, why I think they're important questions to ask, Solomon actually goes to develop the answer throughout the book. And the solution is not to live for the things of this world, but to live and to know the one who stands above it. Hence John 17. To acknowledge and worship the one who richly provides us with all things to enjoy and says that he alone is to be worshipped. Because you see, if you put your trust in idols, it's meaningless. It's meaningless you put yourself, if you're, your trust in anything in this creation, it's vanity. But if you put your trust in God, it's meaningful. Especially when you realize that in Jesus there is actually one who is greater than Solomon, one who is the perfect manifestation of wisdom. Do you remember our Bible reading from 1 Corinthians? Solomon was given wisdom. Jesus is wisdom. And not only was he perfectly wise, but the message of the gospel is the, the wisdom of God. It's the revelation of meaning that breaks through the murky fog of our meaninglessness. For it shines the light of God's truth in the darkness of our sin and so doing shows us where true meaning is to be found. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, remember, God in his wisdom has hidden the answer to the meaning of life in the message of his son. So pay careful attention to what I say next because if you don't get this, you'll, it'll just remain hidden. It's hidden so that the proud won't receive it. That's scary. It's foolish and weak to those who think they are so clever and so strong. But the Apostle Paul says, Jesus is wisdom from God. For if we believe in him, he will become our holiness, our righteousness, and our redemption. Because through the cross, Jesus has opened the door to eternal life. This was such an earth-shattering event that when Jesus died on the cross, the very fabric of human existence of the creation itself was shaken, literally. It was altered. For death itself was being defeated. I once heard a story about a family who had a son who was allergic to bees. You know, they have anaphylactic shock. So every, everywhere they went, one of my good mates is like this. Everywhere he goes, he has to carry an EpiPen so that if he gets um, a bee sting, pretty well within an hour, if he doesn't get this shot of adrenaline, he's dead. Well, the family were on holidays in the car and they had the windows open, and all of a sudden, this, this bee flew into the window. They're going 100 along the freeway, bee flies in. Everybody, especially their young son who's anaphylactic, panics. It's not just like, oh, there's a bee, but there's a, this bee can kill. Now, one of the... Uh, the person driving the car this day happened to catch the bee in their hand. And after 20 seconds or so of holding onto it, they let it go. And you, you knew that it stung them because they were like, ah! And they, they let the bee fly around the car. And everybody everybody went into a panic again, especially the young son. But then their parents said to them, Hey, it's okay. Look at my hand. It can't hurt you anymore. I've taken its sting. It's a great illustration, I think, what Jesus has done. He has borne and taken upon himself the sting of sin and death. He says to us now when we're frightened of death, look at my hands. You've got nothing to be afraid of. I've taken the sting upon myself. And as such, the grave no longer has the victory. Death can't take that away because he's taken death away. The Apostle Paul, and not only does that give us hope after we die, but it actually gives you you meaning for how you live your life now. The Apostle Paul says Says this, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Why, God's people? What does God's word say next? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not hevel, it's not in vain, it's not going to be taken away. I've used this illustration before, but a couple of years ago, Peter Hitchens, the brother of the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens, appeared on a TV show, you know, on the ABC Q&A. At the end of the program, the host, Tony Jones, asked each one of the panellists to respond to one final question. I wonder what you would say to this question. It was during the annual Melbourne Writers' Festival called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. It could be a little bit edgy. I think my, my answer to this would be, because he asked them this, which so-called dangerous idea do you, you, do you each think would have the greatest potential to change the world for the better if it were implemented? I'd be a bit edgy today and go, I think there's boys and girls. <laughs> because that seems to be all thrown into doubt. Anyway, As you could imagine, he received quite a variety of responses. One panellist, for instance, suggested that we should enact Get this, mandatory population control. Because in his opinion, there are too many people in the world and we should terminate all pregnancies for the next 30 years. Horrifically, this comment was met with laughter and even applause from more than a few members of the studio audience. Oh, the horror. Others, such as Germaine Greer, said that it would be dangerous to give people complete freedom because we just don't know how to handle it. Greer has since said that even more radical things, such as questioning the legitimacy of transgenderism. He is the archetypal feminist saying, I, like me, thinks there's boys and girls. The response that was by far and away the most intriguing, though, was by Peter Hitchens. And he said this, the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead and that... That is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. Tony and Jones was, as you can imagine, it is the ABC, was taken a little bit aback and asked, just quickly, because I don't think we can really leave it there, why is that so dangerous? To which Hitchens responded, I really can't leave it there because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all of our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope, and therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. He went on, It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. It is why so many people turn against it. Kitchens was right. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything because he solves our greatest need. It gives us hope in the face of death. And that is why it is not only the most dangerous idea in the history of the world, it is also the most precious You see, because of the resurrection of Jesus, our lives are not Hevel. Our Christian service is not meaningless. Even our death is not vanity. Because the grave no longer has the last word, though, because through Christ we live, even though we die. Indeed, Paul says that the good works which we do will echo throughout eternity. They are meaningful because it involves the conquest of death itself. Do you see? All of which means we shouldn't live for the things of this world which are in and of themselves meaningless. We should live to know and serve Jesus. Do you hear him knocking on your heart? Do you hear him irresistibly drawing you to believe? Your life today can never be the same again. Pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness because those are the only things that are truly meaningful. For since Jesus has defeated death once and for all, whatever we do for the Lord now is of eternal significance, is of eternal consequence. Be wise then, like Solomon, and give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your service as a Christian is not Hebel. Let's pray. Lord God of all creation, the one who rose again from the dead and broke the power of sin and death of the devil, Lord of meaninglessness, we worship you and we praise you, Jesus, because you are the king. You are the king eternal. Lord, there has been such profound truths that we have considered today and we've heard you speak to us through your word. We pray that you'd give us the grace to trust and obey. Lord, as we go from here, may we not reject the word, but may by your grace we receive the word. And we pray this, Lord, for the glory of your name. Amen.